Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 992, my interview with Fleet Moore. We're discussing his new book, Radical Responsibility. You're going to love it. G'day, Fleet. Welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. Great to have you here. Hey, Lee. Great to be here. You're doing loads of stuff, hey? Keeping busy. Yeah, keeping busy. Keeps me out of trouble. I've got your book here, Radical Responsibility, and I just love that idea of, of taking ownership for our lives. So, um, just keen as to, to delve into this, but I actually uh, was curious about your backstory too, Fleet. You were um, imprisoned for uh, 14 years, was it? I was, yeah, and that's uh, obviously, I'm certainly not proud of what got me there. I, I was, you know, one of the baby boomers that came up and came of age in the counterculture era in the U.S., and I just went headlong into all that stuff. I was kind of a classic angry young man and just had a big hole in my gut from various childhood stuff, and Anyway, I went headlong into that, but I was always a spiritual seeker and, and interested in the mind and majored in psychology and things like that. So, you know, I had kind of a split life. I had a lot of good stuff going on in my life, but I was also involved in kind of living outside the system. I lived as an expat in South America for quite a few years and fell on the small-term, small-time uh, drug smugglings, unfortunately, to kind of finance living outside the system. And before I could untangle myself from that, I earned my way into a yeah. Uh, quite a long federal sentence, but uh, but I, I do feel good what, about what I did with the time that I spent there, and uh, I think I was able to do a lot of good, and that's really where the radical responsibility approach was born during my experience in prison. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, wow. So 14 years, I mean, I couldn't imagine what that would be like at all, but um, I, I assume it's a, a very big awakening uh, for a lot of people yeah. that experience well, that. I, and obviously you've used the time well to, to go through a radical transformation. Well, when I first got sentenced, I was actually sentenced to 30 years with no parole. Wow. And I, I was uh, actually facing potentially life in parole on my day of sentencing, anywhere from 10 years to life. Uh-huh. And if I had gotten life, I'd still be there. Because yeah. the only thing that would get you out of that would be a presidential pardon, which is highly unlikely, and that's you're extremely well connected. So... Um, uh, but fortunately, I was sentenced under what they call the old law in the U.S. under the federal sentencing guidelines. I was before the guidelines. So you, back then, before 1987, you still received a lot of good time. So on a 30-year no-parole sentence, if I stayed out of trouble while I was in prison, I would have served about 18 and a half. And then after my appeal went through the courts, they knocked off one count of the five counts, and that reduced my aggregate sentence to 25 years. And so on that, I would serve 14 and a half if I stayed out of trouble, which is what I ended up serving, 14 inside and six months in a halfway house and on on, on house release. But it took me a while to figure that out, uh, how all that worked. And actually, when I got sentenced, and even for the first, you know, uh, no, uh, well, I was in county jail for seven months going through trial and sentencing, which was quite a hellhole. And, and then when I got to the federal prison, it was actually a relief because it was a big place and, you know, I could get a job and there was a prison yard and things to do. But it was also a world of tremendous suffering. It was a maximum security federal prison hospital uh, mm. with 600 medical patients and 400 psychiatric patients. And it was really, when mm. I first got there, it was kind of like a Fellini movie. It was just so much suffering. And and at any rate, you know, uh, I was there for maybe six months before I even figured out that good time thing. So initially, you know, I was 35 when I got sentenced, so I pretty much thought my life was over. I mean, the paper the next morning said, I would be 65 before I have any chance of release. So anyway, it took me a while to figure that out. And even once I did, it was still like a long time. <laughs> yeah, wow. So you had a PhD in psychology before you went in? 
I have a your... master's in psychology. Masters? I did a three-year clinical training program, and then I mm. worked out my PhD while I was in prison and finally finished a dissertation just a few years ago. Okay, that's interesting. So going in there, I mean, how did that affect your mindset? And I guess that, that probably had a big part to play in, in the work you do now, huh? You do a lot of um, meditation and mindfulness training and things like that? Yeah, I also do a lot of work in the criminal justice field and the public safety field. So, huh. uh, you know, I had, I had been involved in a, 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 you know, a deep path of meditation and a lot of study and practice for, well, really for about 15 years before I went to prison. And I've been trained actually as a meditation teacher, but I had this secret life that I kept separate, you know, and, and I knew that the two worlds I was in didn't make sense. And, uh, you know, I spent about half the year in meditation retreats and studying with my teacher, traveling with my teacher and, and doing various kinds of good work. And that's been another half of the year, you know, being this kind of crazy smuggler cowboy character. And, yeah. uh, you know, I just kind of self-medicated around the cognitive dissonance there. I knew it had to end, but before I could untangle myself from it, I managed to earn my way into that, into that federal prison sentence. But when I got there, well, it was really just the fact of even getting arrested and then going to trial I mean, I, it would, I hit a wall immediately and realized, you know, my son was nine years old and now he's going to grow up without his dad. And I had the illusion. I mean, I did love my son and I do love my son, but I was making so many selfish decisions that, hmm. you know, it's amazing that I was putting his life at risk, my, my his mother, my family's life's at risk, you know, continually. Yeah. And, and so I, I just hit that wall and I became radically dedicated to uh, first in terms of my son, just to hopefully do something to leave him a better legacy than just his dad died in prison. Maybe I had no surety that I'd survive my prison time. Yeah. And, and I also became just radically dedicated to get all the negativity out of my life and really try to do something good with everything I'd received from my family and my spiritual teachers. And so, you know, I also realized that I had to not only really focus on my meditation practice even more intensely than I had been before, uh, but I had to really embrace the ethical foundation of the Buddhist tradition I was part of, which I'd been kind of ignoring, obviously. And mm. so I, I really refocused my life and and led this life for 14 years of a prison monk, very dedicated to serving the community I was in and living an ethical life and practicing hours of meditation every day and other kinds of contemplative practices. So it was really a kind of a, a crucible of transformation for me those 14 years in a very intense mm. environment. I can imagine. It's a very dangerous environment. It's 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 you know it's in your face all day long. I mean, on a good day, maybe you only have six or seven very demeaning experiences interacting yeah. with either your fellow prisoners or with the the correctional officers. You know, so I mean, it's a hellish environment. And so, uh, and, and I always really want to let people know that most people come out of prison worse than they went in. It's uh -huh. a very damaging, toxic environment. It's even toxic for the people that work there. I was lucky that I came in with a lot of resources and then with a lot of motivation, I was able to use it as a transformational journey for myself. Mm. But that's not the case for most people that end up incarcerated. No, so you you really have to, I don't know, is it that sort of character that you just uh, inherited that helps you get through those or, you know, just, your, I guess, your previous conditioning? Because I imagine there's a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, a lot of suffering and, and being in that environment, it's got to be very contagious, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe it had something to do with kind of whatever character from my upbringing or even genetics. But but mostly I think it was really uh, it was the influence of all the 
training and everything I received from my principal spiritual teacher, the Tibetan master Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche, and from my parents, and you know, my call, you know, the the, the good stuff I'd received, and and you know, when I fortunately when when I got to that federal prison, you know, after spending seven months in this really horrible little county jail place that was really a, a, a hell realm. Um, yeah. and, and of course I was completely absorbed with the drama of my own situation, right? I'd just gotten sentenced to 30 years without parole. Yeah. I thought my life was over. And, and then I get to this federal prison and I remember the first few days walking around and it was literally like some kind of Bellini movie. I mean, men were being, you know, assisted walking around blind, uh, people being wheeled around in wheelchairs who were paraplegics and quadriplegics in prison. Men coming out of the, the psych ward doing the Halidol or Thorazine two-step over medicated. I mean, it was really, and mm. and the amount of suffering, and it, and it literally just served to shock me out of my preoccupation with myself. And I just immediately woke up to, to the amount of suffering that was there. And because of the influences from my teacher and my background, I just realized I got to show up here and serve. I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. Why I know I know why I'm here. I earned my way there, uh, pretty stupidly. But nonetheless, I'm here for a reason, and I got to figure out how to show up and serve. So that that really jolted me out of preoccupation with my own drama right. and got me on how I could serve there. The other yeah. thing that kind of mentioned was it was an environment of tremendous anger and bitterness. You know, when you'd meet a another prisoner. Kind of the ritual was you might you might you know on the on lunch break after lunch or somewhere you go out for a walk in the yard right mm. walk in the track they had a big track out of the main yard around a softball field and some other stuff out there and and uh, so you know you'd be walking and talking and uh, you know they'd share their victim story and you'd share your victim story you know yeah my ball partner screwed me over and my lawyer screwed me over and this and you know they all yeah. everybody's got a big victim story right and and you know after I did that once or twice it was like. I certainly didn't want to hear my own story anymore, and I didn't really want to hear their stories, which isn't very compassionate. But, and but I just realized if I don't proactively do otherwise, I'm going to come out of here broken, bitter, angry, with a big victim mindset. And I didn't even want to live that way while I was in prison. And, and I'm really grateful for the training I'd had previously, the education I had previously. That that's not who I wanted to be even while I was in prison. But I realized I was going to have to really proactively work to be otherwise. So. You know, I realized that the only way I was going to get through this experience, if, if if I did, if I survived, and the only way I would create any kind of life for myself beyond prison, if I ever got out, was to really embrace absolute 100%, if not 200% responsibility for having got myself into that situation yep. and what I was going to do with it, the choices I was making. So that's where really the radical responsibility uh, approach Agreed. was yeah. born for me. So this radical responsibility—it's—it's it's about taking responsibility, obviously, for your your, your life and and your choices and et cetera, et cetera. Is that sort of encapsulated? You could probably word it better yeah, than I just did. Yeah, and that you know that just seems like it makes common sense, but I, but I take it very deep. Yeah, um, you know, take I, me there. Basically, I often describe it as embracing voluntarily embracing one hundred percent responsibility or ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life which includes the ones we can see we had something to do with. Maybe we created or or allowed or enabled or, you know, whatever. We can see we had some connection to it. But it also includes the ones that we don't see we can have, we have any connection to. They just literally seem like they fell out of the sky. And everybody would agree that we were, it was a great injustice or we were, you know, a victim of that or whatever. We even known those because that's the only place we have any real agency or power so the, the critical thing about the radical responsibility approach to life is making a distinction between ownership and blame. 
because we've all been enculturated, I feel, into a culture really predominated by shame and blame that shame has blame. an underlying mm. negative view of humanity that if you don't, the absent the coercive threat of some kind of shaming or blaming, human beings won't behave well. You know, it kind of comes out of the very Calvinist negative view of humanity and like the flawed nature of humanity. And but it's in the human condition too. I don't. Just, Why do you think that's in the human condition? This shaming and blaming. Well, because we're biologically set up for survival, hmm. and you know, job one is survival for any species. And so yeah. we know there's something called a negativity bias that our brain pays a lot more attention to threat and negativity than anything else. In fact, absent any kind of uncomfortable or unfamiliar or threatening things when we're in neutral or we're having positive experiences hmm. our memory faculty in the midbrain dampens way down we don't remember things with anywhere near the detail vividness or clarity and most importantly it doesn't even go into long-term memory unless we hold it in short-term memory intentionally the science says for about 12 to 20 seconds whereas negative experiences they go right into long-term memory with great vividness and detail so what's our long-term memory mostly full of negativity and that develops what's called implicit memory and implicit bias, where we spin hmm. those things we're experiencing to the negative, right? And so, you know, that that's where the human condition ends up with this kind of negative view of life. And but I guess that just that, evolves that, as you that grow. Kind of default setup. Yeah, well, and that that just evolves as you obviously grow and and you get further conditioned with that negativity negativity bias. Yeah, and, you know, and then, you know, of course, that's influenced the world's religions as well. So I personally think that, mm. you know, the kind of Calvinist form of Protestant Christianity that really focuses on this negative view of humanity, the flawed nature of humanity, and it really influenced the U.S. and its early culture. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's just the influence of the negativity bias on, on a world religion that in its roots was, was quite wonderful. But at any rate, so, you know, we, we, we have that. That's, that's what we're up against. And... Uh, so for a lot of us, we, we, we're, we're kind of unculturally believe if something goes down, if something happens, somebody's got to be blamed. And so if I can't blame somebody else, I'm going to have to blame myself. And I don't want to blame myself. I've had enough blame and shame. Thank you very much. So we naturally deflect. We almost automatically, instinctively deflect mm. blame away from ourselves, right? Mm. And so and the, that's natural. We don't need to feel bad about human condition. But the problem is in doing so, we give our power away. Because if I'm, if I'm unhappy... Like you and I have a conflict, let's say, right? We have a business deal went south and we're, we're all hot on the collar. We're ready to go to fisticuffs or lawyer up and go to court. And, you know, maybe we have a, uh, a friend who said, oh, don't do that. You're going to blow your, your money on lawyers. I know this person who's a mediator, right? And so we go yeah. see the mediator and they interview both of us. And, and, you know, then they come back and say, well, you're both incredible storytellers and salespeople. So it's a he said, he said thing. But I'll tell you what, we're, I, I'm going to put together a focus group who don't know you, couldn't care less about you, and they're smart people. We're going to show it to them. So we have a video of the situation or something. Yeah. So I show it to them. They come back, and, you know, the media says to either one of us, you know, well, you know, they agree that it's more the other person's fault. In fact, they think it's about 70, 30, or 60, 40, right? Well, you know, and, I, and maybe, you know, I'm the one that is less at fault. So I go, wow, I feel vindicated. I'm so glad they realize it's mostly Lee's fault, you know. And I feel vindicated. But does that really mistake make sense? Because if I'm by definition, I'm unhappy, I'm suffering. Right. Because, you know, this situation, if I'm convinced that it's caused by you, whatever percent, whether it's 60, 70 or even 30 percent, I don't get to feel differently until you change. Can I control you? Hmm. No, I can't control you. We can't control the world around us. So when we 
give when we ascribe causation for our internal states to people and things out our, outside ourselves, which we all do all day long, we're giving our power away. And in fact, it's actually not the case because our internal feelings and states arise out of our perception of our needs being met or not. Our basic human needs for, you know, connection, love, belonging, yeah. relationship, autonomy, self-agency, respect, food, warmth, shelter, right? When I perceive my needs are being met, I have all the warm and fuzzy emotions. When I perceive my needs are threatened or not being met, then I have the difficult emotions. And that's a whole internal landscape that we have a lot of agency over. But we don't assume that agency. We assume my feelings are caused by people and things outside myself. And in assuming that, I give my power away to people all the time. Hmm. So what radical responsibility really is, it has nothing to do with blaming ourselves obviously, it has nothing to do with blaming others, obviously, it has yeah. absolutely nothing to do with blaming ourselves. And it's certainly not about blaming victims. It's actually an adequate, it's an act of radical self-empowerment. It's intensely putting my energy where it can do the most good, which is within with myself and my own choices, my own behaviors. Now, that's not to say that Interesting. You yeah. know, I might experience something where other people have a contribution or the world has a contribution. There's injustice. There's all of that. Right. Hmm. But and I can I can even decide I'm going to work to fight injustice, but doing so from a, a an approach of radical responsibility I feel is much more effective than doing so from a victim mindset. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well explained. Um, how do we start to reverse this 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 conditioning of blame and shame? Because it's uh, you know it's we, we we can all see it. It's, yeah, it's everywhere. Um, turn on the news. What do you hear all day long? You know. Yeah. When yeah. was the last time you heard a politician own something? They just, you know, it's a big blame fest. You know, it, it's just everywhere. It's pernicious. Yeah, yeah. So how do we start to take radical responsibility? Well, I believe we need some kind of awareness practice. Because yeah. it's been, that's why the Radical Responsibility book, it's grounded in three things to begin with, which are the first three chapters. The first chapter is all about the view that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with us, which is the opposite of that kind of Calvinist flawed nature of humanity view. Yeah. And it's really been a historic, the dominant historical view throughout humanity across culturally is the innate basic goodness, the unconditional goodness of human beings and of life altogether. I mean, the idea that life is somehow a mistake and that we're all fundamentally broken, it doesn't even make sense in the first place. So in the depth of our being, there's nothing wrong with us. And that's the view of basic goodness. So it starts with that. And then we can actually experience that directly through various mindfulness and awareness practices, mindfulness and awareness meditation, various contemplative practices that allow us to drop into the body and into the depth of our being where we actually experience that there is nothing wrong with us. So we're not yeah. missing anything. We're not broken. We may have all kinds of issues on the surface that we need to yeah. deal with, hmm. but in the depth of our being, nothing wrong. And and that's really the, the deepest source of our of our unconditional competence and resilience and so forth in life. And then the third chapter is about the integrating mindfulness, mind training with emotional intelligence training. So we really start to understand how our emotions work and work with our mind. But having some kind of reflective, contemplative, or mindfulness practice gives us the ability to recognize what's going on with ourselves and recognize, you know, how thoughts lead to feelings, to impulses, to behaviors, to consequences, to impact on others. And and if mm -hmm. we have the possibility of waking up in the midst of all our conditioning and going, oh, I see what's going on here. I could actually make a different choice that would lead to a different result. And I'm going to choose that. Right. So yeah. I think we need something to slow it down, some kind of mind training, some kind of contemplative practice. And then yeah. we need to really understand something about the human condition. We under, we under, we under, we need to understand the psychology of conditioning. 
We need to understand how habits are formed, how you can deconstruct habits and create new habits. Mm-hmm. Right? We need to understand the dynamics of drama, which is why I focus a lot on Cartman's drama triangle in the book, the whole triangulation of the victim yeah. mindset, the persecutor mindset, and the rescuer mindset, and how to, how to get free of that, because it drives human conflict and drama from the drama that destroys families and causes divorce to the drama that plays out in constant warfare all around the world. Mm-hmm. So, you know, understanding all this, like, you know, I love Tony Robbins often says uh, he wants people to become, you don't have to go get a degree in psychology, but he wants us to become practical psychologists, which means we understand enough about the basic human psychology to be able to free ourselves from living an unconscious mechanical life and developing well, it makes sense, doesn't it? and actually, hmm. you know, direct our own life. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. I mean, you can't fix something if you don't really understand the, the mechanics behind it. So Exactly. That makes exactly. a lot of sense. Just just skipping back a little bit to that mindfulness practice or reflective practice, is there a particular practice that you'd recommend or that you could walk us through maybe what you do as far as a mindfulness practice? Yeah, well, I do a lot of practices, but the mm. basic practice, the foundation practice is basic mindfulness of body, mindfulness of breath practice or meditation. Okay. And, you know, there's, there's lots of ways you can integrate mindfulness into your life. You can, when you're out walking your dog, you can do it mindfully as opposed to just letting your mind spin out and drift around, right? So yeah. you can bring mindfulness into any activity, but that's all you're going to more likely to remember to do that if you have a foundational practice where you take a few minutes of your day, whether it's 10 minutes or, you know, I do an hour every morning at least, but the more you do, the better. But even 10 minutes can be effective where you just sit down, you sit in a relatively upright posture that's wakeful. And maybe you lower your gaze so you're not distracted. And then you just bring your attention to the body, to actually feeling the physicality of the body from head to toe and feeling the breath flowing out of your body, you know, in and out. And so in that way, I know when I'm breathing in, I know when I'm breathing out, I'm present, I'm awake. And, you know, so I'm, I'm using the, the physical awareness, the sensory awareness of the body and the sensory awareness of the breath as an anchor to anchor me in a present moment. And then, of course, my, I'm going to get distracted. My mind's going to wander off. That's what it does. And when I notice my mind has wandered, I bring it back. If it wanders again, I bring it back. I don't beat myself up about it. That's not helpful at all. I just gently bring it back. And every time I recognize that my mind has wandered and I bring it back, it's like doing another rep. I'm building yeah. that muscle of mindfulness, right? So that's basic mind training, right? We decide to place our attention somewhere, and when our attention moves, we bring it back. Basic mm. you know, you know, you can do that with anything, but that's the core training. And then as you're doing that, you want to infuse the awareness you're bringing to your own experience, right? Because once you stabilize your attention a bit through training, then you're just being with your experience as it is, which includes all your sensory experience, the five senses. It includes your emotional experience. It includes all the thoughts coming and going. Yeah. And you're able to just be with that and kind of let it. There's two things. One, you're just letting it be as it is, and you're creating a, and you're creating an attitudinal approach along with that of, you know, attitude of openness, curiosity, non-judgment, inclusiveness, self-acceptance. So you create this non-judgmental space and you just allow your experience to arise as it will and fall away as it will within that. And there's there's a natural kind of emptying and healing that happens of all the accumulated junk in our nervous system. And at the same time, by just being there and witnessing your own experience moment to moment, over time, you develop a lot of insight into how it all works. Hmm. And that insight is what frees us from the mechanicalness, the conditioned mechanicalness of living a mechanical, unconscious, reactive life. And we learn to live a, a, an awake, present life where we're actually 
here, awake, present, available in our relation. It completely transforms our relationship because yeah. instead of sleepwalking through life and being in a reactive relationship with others, we're actually available. People experience us as really awake, present, available, and it's very different. Have more intention, I guess. Yeah. And there's so much available now. I mean, yeah. on the, there's so many apps, and, and I mean, on the web, there's just so many resources for mindfulness yeah. training. Now, I have them on my own website, fleetmall.com or heartmindinstitute.co. But, you know, there's so much out there now. It's become a big world, the world of mainstream mindfulness. It's huge, isn't it? It's gone uh, yeah. gone gangbusters, as I say. Yeah, I mean, here in the U.S., there's a new app that they've poured. I mean, it must be a lot of money in it because there's a new app called Calm. And, uh, oh, and yeah. LeBron James is the one promoting it. You know, he's getting paid big bucks for doing that. Who's that, James? Who did you say he's promoting it? Yeah, he's he's like the, the celebrity promoter for that app, right? And, who was uh, who was that? James. It's called Calm. C A L M. Calm. Calm up. Google that, guys. But there's hundreds of apps. I mean, there's probably a thousand mindfulness apps now. Do you have a uh, app at all, or just the website there? We have, we have an app for our. Uh, we do a lot of work in in the criminal justice and public safety space. That's been a big part of my work ever since. Get, well, even while I was in prison, I started a nonprofit while I was in there to support other prisoners interested in mindfulness and and. Buddhist meditation and things like that. And so I've been out for 22 years now, and that's a thriving nonprofit now. Not only do we work with at-risk incarcerated and returning youth and adults, but now we do a lot of work with correctional officers, probation and parole officers, police, fire and safety. Uh, so we've been doing that with public safety professionals hmm. for about 12, 13 years. And for that work, we have an app um, yeah. that's called, uh, it's called CMPS. CMPS, which is Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, CMPS Mindfulness. So if somebody goes to an app store and you just put in CMPS Mindfulness, CMPS, yeah. Uh, yeah, they can find our app, yeah. So when did you, you said you, you were quite into this spiritual, spirituality before you went into prison. Um, I think you mentioned Buddhism. Is that mm -hmm. where you sort of started your mindfulness practices way back then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, w I don't know why I was spiritually inclined. I grew up Roman Catholic in the Midwest of the U.S. And, yeah. you know, my family early on used to think I was going to become a priest, but I lost my faith pretty early on. Actually, I had a good Catholic education. I, you know, I had grade school, K through 12 with Dominican nuns. And then I had, that was pretty intense. Why do you think you lost your faith there? I just don't think I ever had it. I think I was probably, you know, <laughs> okay. there is such a thing as multiple lifetimes. I think I was probably been a Buddhist for a long time. But, yeah. Uh, I went to high school, a Jesuit high school, where I, they're good educators. I got a very good, you know, kind of Jesuit prep school education. Yeah. And um, and they actually were happy for you to graduate a thinking agnostic rather than just retaining your kind of childhood catechismal beliefs. Um, but at any rate, in my sophomore year, in a comparative religion class, was the first time I read texts from other religions. And I read uh, some Buddhist texts, some Buddhist scripture, classical Buddhist scriptures. And it was the first thing I ever read that really made any sense to me. It was just really, I just read it, it was just immediate recognition. Mm. And then that summer, uh, I ran to a book by Herigl, a German who had gone to Japan, you know, in the late 40s or 50s and studied the Japanese Zen art of archery called Kudo. Yeah. And, and his work with his Kudo master was basically a deconstruction of his own ego, mm. his own conditioning. And I read that book, and I immediately knew I was a Buddhist. And I started reading D.T. Suzuki, and I there wasn't a whole lot published back then. But I started reading various things, and I was growing up in the middle of the United States, so I wasn't there weren't a lot of other people interested in that. 
But I kept stumbling along, finding my way. And then eventually I was living in South America as an expat and studying the few books that were available on Tibetan Buddhism and Taoism. And I was trying to meditate on my own. And uh, But I knew I needed more help. And then I heard about the founding of Naropa University in 1974 by the Tibetan master Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche. I knew I had to go there. So that's where I went and got my master's degree. And it was a three-year, a really deep clinical training program uh, mm. in, in psychology and counseling. And I did that for three years and in the process became a student of his. And that's where I really got deep into Buddhist training and practice. Yeah. Wow. So what was that book by that German guy again? Uh, it's called uh, Zen in the Art of Archery or Zen and the Art of Archery. I can't remember. By Zen Herod, and the Art German of Archery. Yeah. Either Zen in or Zen and. I think it's Zen in. Zen in the Art of Archery. Be worth a read. I'll put it on the list. So... This mindfulness practice, um, I mean, we've talked about it uh, many times on the show here and, and, yes, there's a lot of information and apps and all that sort of stuff out there for people to um, delve into it, but certainly a great place to start with this, you know, idea of awareness, becoming more aware and becoming more intentional. And I, I, I won't claim to be a, a great example of, you know, how to have a mindfulness practice, but certainly um, I do do practice it and it's helped me uh, in a great way. Um, and I need to do more of it, you know, having conversations with the likes of yourself, Fleet. It's, um, it's certainly something that inspires me to, to get into it a bit more. The, what, what is empathic awareness? You talk about that in Chapter 3. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I work a lot with Goldman's model, uh, Daniel Goldman, who's a colleague, um, uh, his model of emotional intelligence training, so he has the four quadrants of self-awareness and then self-regulation, social awareness, and then relationship management or effective relationship skills. Yeah. So in the realm of, of social awareness, we talk about empathic awareness, which means, first of all, it really requires first developing an empathic relationship with ourselves. So as we're practicing various contemplative practices, mindfulness practices, that's creating that internal attitude towards oneself. Of, you know, shifting to a, you know, we're often very self-critical. We're all mm. very hard on ourselves, which isn't helpful. Mm. So it's great to be honest with ourselves, but it's not helpful to beat ourselves up. So we're shifting our relationship to ourselves to be one that's a lot more self-accepting, a lot friendlier to ourselves. And I mean, if we're not going to be our own best friend, who will be, right? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we're developing these attitudinal qualities of, of um self-acceptance and self-compassion and so forth, self-empathy. So as we develop a more self-aware uh, way of being, and as we're developing greater empathy for ourselves, then we, when we turn our world to our attention to the world around us, that attention is naturally more empathic. And mm -hmm. so empathic awareness means I'm tuning into the world around me, both the physical world, the natural world, and the people that I interact with. And uh, with greater interest and curiosity, you know, I'm seeing more. I'm basically getting more data, right? The more aware I am, I'm getting more data and more accurate data about myself and the world around me. And then especially in terms of the people I interact with in my life, uh, I'm really tuning into what are they feeling and needing. And I actually care about what they're feeling and needing. And because I tune in and, and I'm, I'm more aware of body language and facial expression, and because I just care, I'm naturally picking up more data and understanding What's going on with the people I interact with? I don't know for sure, but I'm getting a better sense of it, um, mm. of, of what's going on with them, what they're feeling and what they might be needing. And that's just going to give me the data 
to be able to interact with them much more skillfully so that we can find win-win ways to get our, our needs met in mutually beneficial ways, right? So yeah. really just tuning into others with a caring attitude, and that's really what we mean by empathic awareness. The um, Yeah, I guess you, you take it away from that, that level of self-absorption that, um, you know, again, guilty as for walking out there every day, um, um, focusing on your own needs and, and those being met and, and really just uh, disregarding others, not not in a deliberate way, but certainly in an, uh, I guess, an unconscious or subconscious sort of manner. Yeah. And, and you sort of said that when you went into prison, you sort of walked in there and you were so self-absorbed because everything's just happened to you, but then you started to remove yourself uh, from within and uh, focusing on everything around you as an example. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's definitely an example of that. And, you know, we don't need to feel bad about any of it. Again, it's just it's just a human condition. Yeah. And, and, and I think the science is really helpful. That's one thing. I think that's one of the reasons that the mainstream mindfulness movement which is based mostly on practices that came out of the Buddhist tradition. All you can find, you can find similar practices in all the great religious traditions and philosophical traditions and indigenous and shamanic traditions. But, but the core practices that are most used in the mainstream mindfulness uh, movement kind of literally came from from uh, basic Buddhist meditation. Yeah. But at any rate, um, uh, you know, it's like. Uh, we don't need to feel bad about uh, what's going on. And, and the thing that really helps with that, and I think this caused the mainstream mindfulness movement to expand so quickly, is that we have so much scientific understanding of it today. Hmm. The marriage between, you know, the, the several thousand year old tradition of meditation and, and current neuroscience has really exploded the interest and the availability of it. So one simple thing that's very helpful to understand yeah. is we have, we have many neural networks in the brain, but two that really come into play here. One's called the default mode network. And the default mode network is active when we do not direct our attention. If we just, you know, don't direct our attention and the mind's just wandering wherever it minds, that's the noisy part of our brain. And it loves to time travel. It loves to go into the past and ruminate about the past, worry about the past. It loves to go into the future and fantasize about the future, worry about the future. It's got a running commentary going on about the present, thinking about me and what others think about me, informing all my opinions. We're all familiar with that noisy, like static of a radio station going on between our ears all the time. Yeah. When people try to practice mindfulness or meditation, they go, oh, I can't, my mind's too busy, my eyes can't focus. Well, that's that's what's going on. That's right? what's happening. <laughs> so there's another set of neural networks called the task positive network, sometimes called the executive network. And that activates when we direct our attention. Right? Right. And so that's why the way I teach mindfulness, I teach a very embodied approach to mindfulness. I get people that really feel their body at a sensate level, not only sensations on the surface of the skin from head to toe, but all the internal sensations, activating our capacity for interoception, which is short for internal perception or interoceptive awareness where we can feel the body all the way down to the bones because the entire body is a living organism, all containing neuronal cells, all connected to the central nervous system, including the bones, the marrow of the bones, the circulatory system, the muscles, connective tissue, vital, the whole body. And, and with practice, we can really feel into that and develop a relationship with the living sensory experience of the body. And the more we do that, that really anchors us in the body and it activates the task-positive network. And the task-positive network and the very noisy default mode network are mutually inhibitory. Huh. So as you bring the task-positive network online, 
the, the Baltimore network goes offline right. and you find your attention stabilizing and yeah. then your awareness stabilizing and that starts to give us access to profound states of awareness. Yeah. So the fact that our, our that we're living kind of mechanical, unconscious mind with constantly distracted, we don't need to feel bad about that. That's just where we all start. That's the human condition. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can well explained the um the whole body mind connection and I, I just going on to a point you just sort of mentioned there i imagine that's why you know getting outdoors and and you know going for a run or doing some exercise being physical um can actually help you connect a bit more with this this intention as well does that make sense yeah absolutely i mean i think there's the inner work and the outer work right so yeah. I, I personally feel it's really important to develop that internal awareness of the body. And the deeper that goes, we're going into that that con- body-mind continuum, right? Body and mind are not separate. There's some kind of continuum. In, and the deeper we go into that, feel into that, we're starting to get into the below the noise and into the depth of our being. And that's where we're going to experience unmistakably that innate unconditional basic goodness where we're not, we know we're not broken. We know we don't need fixing. We know we're whole. And that gives us tremendous unconditional confidence about our life. And at the same time, by getting out of our head and getting out in the external world and focusing on nature especially. Now, we're all kind of internally focused, although we're really distracted by the internal noise in our head. We're Mm. constantly distracted by the world around us, but not in a very conscious way. But if we get out in nature especially and really pay attention to our sense perceptions, right, and appreciate the colors and the natural world and and really go out for a hike and you know, usually when you go out for a hike, your mind quiets because you're really, you know, the beauty of the world around you. I remember one time I went into uh, Muir Woods, which is, you know, in uh, in Northern California, I think in Marin County, just over the Golden Gate Bridge to the north of it. And it's all these old redwoods, right? And wow. it's a very famous place. And there's these huge old growth redwoods in there. And when you go in there, it's like going into a cathedral and everybody just talks in a whisper. You just naturally quiet down, your mind mm. quiets down because you're just blown away by what you're experiencing, right? So the natural world can be very helpful uh, way. So I think it's I think it's both in terms of awakening our sense perception, both internally and externally, has a lot to do with the path of awakening. Can there be too much mindfulness? Well, only if you by mindfulness you meant a kind of paranoid. You know, well, yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can get too deep that you actually right? if you, you, you become constantly self-monitoring. You know, that yeah, that's okay. not really that's not what that's we mean different, by isn't it? Yeah. No. Um, so interesting about that. Yeah, the whole the, the focusing and and going deep into that. What did you call it? The task task mode network. The, the task positive network is one task name for it. Right? Positive network. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Which, so where, which stabilizes our attention and our awareness. Yeah. How do you get, I guess, it's through this mindset training um, that you probably do, but, you know, this this victim mentality that people have and this, I guess it's going back to what we started with, the blame mentality as well. I guess it's yeah. sort of related. You, you talked about the, the, um, the empowerment triangle of radical responsibility. Yeah. Well, in the radical responsibility model, we, we begin with we focus on understanding what what I call the drama zone drama and zone. and how uh, we get into trying we're in, we're enculturated and conditioned to try to get our needs met by blaming others by justifying our own behaviors by uh, shaming ourselves by uh, 
by uh, being hooked on being right at the expense of being in relationship, by holding on to resentments. All these things, we get an emotional payoff for doing these things, but and we wouldn't do them if we didn't. But I call this the junk food of the emotional life, right? It's so quick payoff, lasting suffering. Yeah. And also it's where the drama triangle is, Stephen Cartman's drama triangle, where we get we get triggered into this triangulation, right? And we, we're, I'm, I'm feeling victimized. I'm imagining someone or something is my persecutor. I started looking for a rescuer, and you get that triangle spinning, right? It becomes a toxic hole of constant conflict and drama. And, and once you study a bit of Cartman's drama triangle, you just see it everywhere. It just dominates our world. So then how do we get out of this, right? How do we get out mm. of this world of the drama zone? Well, there's a magical question that I can always ask myself, whatever situation I'm in, and this really is what informed and transformed my life in prison. Yeah. So no matter how bad of a situation we might be in, right, maybe our boss is a total tyrant, maybe we're in prison, maybe, you know, whatever we're in, and maybe it's a complete injustice we're suffering, and it's terrible, and it's horrible. So I ask myself one simple question because I'm in that I'm, I'm likely feeling victimized and feeling helpless and powerless, right? Yeah. So yeah. I can ask myself one simple question, and that question is, what can I do? The minute I ask myself that question, I'm shifting out of the victim mindset into what I call the co-creative mindset. I'm focused on solutions. There's always a million things we can do. Just attitudinally, there's different ways we can think about something. There's different ways we can frame something. If it's with an interaction with a coworker or a boss or something or a spouse or whoever it is, there's yeah. hundreds of different ways we could approach that person. There's hundreds of different ways we could talk to that, and they'll all get a different result. right? So that gets us out of that victim mindset into the solution-based creative thinking of what I call the co-creative mindset. And that gets me out of the drama zone and into the empowerment zone. Now, further, I talk about the steps to really kind of make that shift um, continuously or, or significantly is that really it begins with what I call radical responsibility, which is embracing 100% ownership for each and every circumstance I face in life as an act of radical self-empowerment, having nothing to do with self-blame. Just like the example I gave before, when you're in conflict with someone and if you ascribe causation to them, you're giving your power away because you can't control them. So mm -hmm. in my own enlightened self-interest, I'm going to focus on what can I do on self-responsibility, ownership for my own choices. Which doesn't mean I'm dismissing. You know, I may actually have been victimized by something and people do get victimized. Yeah. But I'm just focused, okay, am I going to let this take me down or am I going to find the most creative way I can to respond? And that in some circumstances could take tremendous courage. And this is about, not about talking to somebody else who's been victimized and say, hey, you need to get off your victim trip. Absolutely not. That would be horrible. This is about ourselves, right? This is about what we're doing with our own experience. So first step is embracing that level of personal responsibility, radical responsibility, or ownership. The second step I call accountability, which means we keep our agreements. I do what I say I'm going to do. Hmm. And then the third step is being open and real and genuine. So let's say you and I, Lee, we have a personal and professional relationship. Yeah. And I own my own stuff. I don't blame you for my stuff. I own my own stuff. I keep my agreements with you. And I'm willing to be open and real with you. What does that create between us? A yeah, level of trust. Exactly. And trust creates relationships. So we call the empowerment zone the domain of authentic relationship. Authentic. And to me, that's the blue sky of human life. We're yeah. social beings. And if we want an amazing life, we need amazing relationships. We don't do it alone. Now, we can have relationships down in the drama zone. You know, we can find drama triangle buddies to get involved in drama with. But that's a whole other thing. What I'm talking about in terms of authentic relationships is the kind of relationships that we create in just the way I talked about that, you know, 
We own our own stuff. We take responsibility for our own stuff. We have integrity. We do what we say we're going to do. We do our best at that. And, you know, if we make a mistake or we can't keep an agreement, then we renegotiate it. We own it and renegotiate it. And, and we're open and real with others. And that creates trust and creates real relationship. And that's really the blue sky of our human lives. And so we call that domain the domain of the authentic relationship or the, or the, the empowerment zone. That's great. Ah, well, um, I just love that one question. And I guess it comes from that, you know, mindfulness practice, the more aware you are, the easier it is to be asking that question in those situations where you feel like the world's come down on you. You know, what can I do? I think it's it's just fantastic. Um, mate, lots in this book. Um, it's, a, it's a fairly well-written book and lots of information in there to digest. So we'll stick the link in the show notes for the audience. Um, I've got a couple of quick questions for you there, Fleet. And the first one is, um, other than your mindfulness practice, I suppose, is there any other ritual or routine that you have as part of your daily practice that helps contribute to your success in life? Well, along with the basic mind training of mindfulness practices, mm. I think it's very important to do self-compassion practices. And I have those in the book as well. Okay. Um, yep. So there's these, literally these self-empathy, self-compassion meditation practices I think are very important because yeah. we really need to work at shifting that inner landscape, that mm. relationship we have ourselves from being one where we're continually hard on ourselves and even shaming ourselves yeah. to one where we're, we're fundamentally compassionate with ourselves. So that's really important. Mm. In terms of what I do, you know, with my, I, I lead it, you know, I, I work really hard and I have an incredibly busy schedule and I and I do a lot of people often wonder well, how do you do all that well I spend the first two and a half hours every day on on prepping for my day so I wake up in the morning I have a whole exercise routine I do in bed before I even get out of bed all kinds of stretching and so forth and then I do some intense breath work and then when I sit on the side of my bed then I do another kind of breath work and then I get and do more work on the floor you know push-ups and different stuff you know some yoga stuff yoga stretching so I spend at least a half hour in that kind of exercise. Uh, then I hit the shower and do my whole bathroom thing. Then I go into the room that my wife and I have for our meditation practice. And I do and use it anywhere from an hour to an hour and 15 minutes usually of, of various inner practices, meditation practices. Uh, and then we go down and have breakfast. And, mm. uh, and I have a really good, healthy, nutritious breakfast. And so I do all that, and then I start my work day. So I've had two and a half hours of really, you know, taking care of myself, building that foundation for the day, and, uh, you know, and then I start my day. And during the day, uh, I try to take a break every hour for five or ten minutes and do some stretching, step outside for a minute. Uh, I usually stop and do a bit of a workout in the middle of the day. I have a workout thing down in my basement. And, uh, and you know, and then, you know, I have a nutrition dinner, and I and usually go for a walk after dinner with my wife. And, you know, I eat, I'm very careful what I eat. I'm mostly plants. So I'm not a vegetarian. I have been in my life at different points, but currently I'm not a vegetarian, but I mostly fish and, uh, uh, and mostly a plant-based diet and, uh, you know, really focus on, on taking good care of myself so that, uh, so that I can really perform at the highest level. So and that's certainly going to help with that self-compassion. Yeah. It's, um, that's nice. It's so critical that, that morning process too. I think it's, um, It'll uh, change anyone's uh, well-being um, if they start getting into that sort of habit. Do you have a definition of success, or how do you define success? You know, I I don't know. I, I think uh, I, I certainly wouldn't want to measure success by any external standards or comparing it with anybody else. I think yeah. it really is about internal alignment with our own uh, 
you know, kind of our own spirit, our own being and our own internal motivations. Like, you know, uh, I think if, if I'm not giving up on myself, if, if I'm not playing small, you know, just to hide out, if I'm continually stepping, you know, stepping up to challenge myself, stepping up to learn new things and, you know, taking some risks, a reasonable risk, right. To, you know, to learn and grow, you know, to me, that's a successful life. If I, if I haven't, if, if I'm not, you know, if I'm, if I'm still growing, I'm still learning. You know, I like uh, Tony Robbins has a, a definition of, you know, what really brings about genuine happiness in life or genuine life satisfaction. Mm. He says it's the deeply felt experience that we're growing, that we're evolving and and the deeply felt experience that we're contributing to life. Yeah. So I, I think if for any of us at whatever level makes sense for us, if we if we're if we're still growing, still evolving, doing the work to grow and evolve. And if we're contributing to life at whatever level, in some way, I think that's the definition of a successful life. Yeah, I like that. What what advice would you give your twenty year old self? Huh. <laughs> well, I I would have uh, <laughs> I probably would have said don't don't get uh, uh, focus on training yourself and and don't get lost in the reactivity and the uh, the seduction of um, of, uh, you know, the whole counter counterculture thing that I was facing at that time. But there's, yeah. there's always what young people are, you know, there's always the world of social media today. And, mm. you know, there's always something to get completely caught up and distracted by and seduced by. I, I would have I would have said, you know, life is about training. You know, you're going to be in training the rest of your life. So just get, get fall in love with training. Mm. You know, just fall in love with training. Whatever kind of training, whether it's working out physically, working out psychologically, growing, evolving, studying, just fall in love with training, become a lifelong learner, and just focus your energy there and then trust that it's going to pay off really well for you and others. Yeah, I like it. Do you think you would have um, been doing what you're doing today, such great work, if you didn't go through that that process of going into prison? I wouldn't be doing the same work, um, Mm. that's for sure. Mm. You know, it's kind of by the time I got indicted and uh, went to prison, I, I was already very motivated to turn my life around and I was letting yeah, go of that, that stuff. Yeah. And if I had gone to prison, I, I'm sure I would have led a good life, but it would have been a very different life. Very and different, I don't yeah. know that I would have been adding as much value as I'm um, ad- adding to life today and certainly not in the same way. But I, I still think I, I probably, there would have been elements, the kind of shadows of the stuff I've been involved with, Right. Uh, would have lingered. I don't think I would have continued in criminal activity, but still, the, the, I don't think I would have embraced radical responsibility uh, mm-hmm. as soon as I did. Or I, I don't know if I would have ever stumbled into that level of radical response. I would have continued my Buddhist path, and that, you know, that's what. I mean, radical responsibility is not a new idea. I think I take it very deep and very radical. Uh, you know, even back to the Stoics, right? Marcus Aurelius, who sometimes they call him the last great Roman emperor, and he was a Stoic philosopher. Uh, you know, there's a whole book of his aphorisms and sayings, which is highly recommended. But paraphrasing, paraphrasing one of them, it's something like, you know, the, the majority of people think that their destiny is controlled by their life circumstances, but in, which is not true. The fact is their destiny is determined by their response to those circumstances, right? Mm. And then you have Viktor Frankl, who was, you know, in the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz, where I go every year as one of the leaders of a, what we call a bearing witness retreat there. I've been going there for 20 years. It's a very transformative experience. And we take several hundred people there, or about 100, and, uh, 100 to 150 people there each year. And um, 
So Viktor Pankl was there. His whole family wiped out. He was in uh, the labor camp where people were dropping like flies of starvation and extreme weather and, and abuse and everything you can imagine. And uh, and he, but he was a psychiatrist and a psychologist and he wanted to survive. But he was also really curious. Why are some people dying? Why are some people surviving? And, uh, you know, he developed his whole post-war therapy model, logotherapy from his experiences there. And and, um, you know, what he, he discovered two things. He discovered one that we're teleological human beings. We can only we'll, we'll, we need a, we need a sense of future to continue living. So he found that people that were surviving had something to live for, whether it was some just wanted to survive so they could bear witness to what happened there. And for him, he wanted to survive to continue his work and finish his papers and his contributions to his field. And he kept visualizing that to give himself the will to go on. But the other thing he discovered was that even in the worst circumstances one can imagine, and you couldn't imagine much worse than being in one of the most mm. Nazi death camps yeah. of World War II, Auschwitz, right? Stripped of any ounce of human dignity, starving, and maybe a guard even has a gun right at your forehead, right? Like he said, even in that circumstance, you still have choice. Yeah. Maybe not a choice whether to live or die, because maybe the guard's going to pull the trigger, but you still have choice. And he said the choice you have is the choice over the attitude you bring to that situation. And that's a choice nobody can ever take away from you. Now, yeah. that can be a hard one choice, because if you've been choosing anger and bitterness and a victim mindset your whole life, it's going to be hard to shift that in the moment, mm. which is why it's good to practice with the small stuff. But people have made shifts in, even in those kind of circumstances. So, you know, again, these are not new ideas. And he's also for famous for talking about that, that space between the stimulus and the reaction or the stimulus and the response. And therein lies the whole of human freedom, that ability to recognize our capacity to make a conscious choice yeah. instead of just being driven by our habitual mechanical conditioning. So good. So good. Love it. Love your work. Um, if you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? Uh, hmm. Well, if I let the... the 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 uh, I don't know if I'll call it evil, but if I let one side of my brain talk, it would probably be pizza. But if I let the more enlightened side of my brain talk, I'd probably love a really great salad out of my own backyard garden, which I'm enjoying Lovely. quite frequently these days. Yeah, nice. Is there a Maybe particular activity? A nice piece of salmon along with it. <laughs> nice bit of salmon. Is there a, a particular activity that gives you the greatest sense of joy? Well, I love sailing. I, I'm I'm a yeah. land lover at the moment. I was living in Providence, Rhode Island a few years back, and I had my own sailboat. And my dog, I lost my beloved Labrador, Zigi. He, he lived till he was 16, so good long life for a dog. But at any rate, uh, you know, my the dock where I kept my boat was literally a block and a half from my house. And I could just, you know, at the end of the day, 5 or 6 o'clock, I'd say, Zigi, let's go to the boat. And he'd come racing out. And we'd just walk down to the boat and get on the boat go sailing for two hours. So I really love that, and I miss that. I, I love sailing. So that's mm. one activity that uh, that I really like. And uh, now that I'm a land lover, I don't have a lot of hobbies going on at the moment. I love my work. I'm passionate about my work. You know, I'm sometimes accused of being a workaholic, but but actually, I'm just really passionate about what I do. But apart from that, I, I love hanging out with my wife and uh, and uh, going out to dinner, or even just sitting around at home and having meals and talking together because she's a fabulous, fabulous gourmet cook. And uh, so, you know, and, and, and also uh, from time being out with close friends, I, I enjoy that a lot. That's excellent. Mate, um, real pleasure speaking with you. You've got a lot of uh, links to, you know, people to reach out to you, including obviously the book, radicalresponsibilitybook.com. Uh, you've got your own website, fleetmall.com. Is there any other um, directions you want to send people? 
Well, my, my courses, I have a lot of courses, including my online course on neurosomatic mindfulness, which, uh, which yeah. I've worked really hard on. I think it's a very deep course. And mm -hmm. uh, the online summits we do and some of my other courses, like Mindful Leadership and so forth, is it a, is it a website called heartmindinstitute.co. Yeah. Not .com, but just .co. .co. Uh, so heartmindinstitute.co is where I have all my online courses and the online summits we do. Excellent, excellent. Guys, a lot of links there, uh, all in the show notes, episode 992 with Fleet Mall. Uh, just Google it. Uh, Fleet, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Lee. Wish you all the best and great to uh, connect with. Uh, I don't know whether your audience is mostly in Australia, but uh, I haven't been there yet. I really, I really would love to get there, but I've always loved everything about everything I've experienced about Australian culture and the Aussie friends that I've met. So uh, if this is mostly an Aussie audience, I really want to say hello, mates, and uh, great to be with you. <laughs> well, make sure if you, you come, you visit the Sunshine Coast. We'll take you out for uh, a bit of a beach swim or something. That would be great. Guys, check it out, thehiddenwide.com, episode 992. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwide.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon